0: What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place With artists and authors from Maine.
1: Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is Martha White, writer, editor, and literary executor for the estate of her grandfather, E.B. White. She's a graduate in English from Mount Holyoke College and was a longtime contributing editor to Yankee Publishing and the Old Farmer's Almanac. Her articles, reviews, and essays have been published in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Christian Science Monitor, Early American Life, Country Journal Down East, and many other publications. In 2006, she edited the revised and updated letters of E.B. White, HarperCollins, and since then has compiled three more collections of E.B. White's work. In the words of E.B. White, Cornell University Press, 2011, E.B. White on Dogs, Tilbury House Publishers, 2013, and E.B. White on Democracy, HarperCollins, 2019, which has recently been translated into Chinese and will be sold in that country under the title E.B. White on Hope, after one of its letters by that title. More recently, she offered her editorial guidance to the Skidamfa Library in Darmstadt for their authorized publications of Chickens, Gin, and a Maine Friendship, the correspondence of E.B. White and Edmund Ware Smith, East Books, 2020. The letters had been lost in a bank safe deposit box for 40 years after her grandfather had donated them to the library following the death of Smith's widow, who had lived near there. So, Martha, welcome.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here Uh, again. Again,
1: (laughs) yes. Uh, Martha was on the board of WERU Radio at one point. Many uh, years ago. Many years ago, back when it was in a chicken house.
2: Uh, no, it was it was here, I think, by the time I came on was the board. Right. Yeah, maybe recently, only recently here.
1: Well, we're going to talk about chickens a little uh, yes. bit more. <laughs> I usually ask who you are, where you came from, and how you came to be.
2: Ah, uh-huh. okay. Uh, well, I grew up down the road from the old chicken house of WERUs uh, right on uh, Bay Road in Brooklyn, so, I was uh, down the road from my grandfather who was in North Brooklyn. We used to ride our bicycles over there. And I was probably in my 30, early 30s when he died in 1985. So, you know, I knew him basically from my childhood and early adult years. And then became the executor of his literary estate after my father died. My mother took it on for a few years in between, and, and I slowly. Uh, got handed the job, which has actually been fun.
1: Right.
2: But talk about your own career as a writer. So I, as you said, was educated at Mount Holyoke. I was an English major all along and thought I would like nothing better than to just be able to read books and get paid for it for the rest of my life. So that was my goal. I thought about going into the publishing world, but didn't really want to live in a city. So I did not do that and was living in Massachusetts at the time. I stayed in the Northampton area after college and and then moved up to New Hampshire when I married and was down the road from Yankee Publishing and the old Farmer's Almanac. So after a few years of doing office work and other small businesses, leaving a knitting shop and other uh, business journals and doing newspaper work and reporting and that sort of thing, I, I went to work first part-time and then more full-time for Yankee Magazine and the Old Farmer's Almanac. And my job there was to edit the Old Farmer's Almanac, the left and right-hand pages of the almanac, but also to do an occasional writing piece for them and also calendars and other side projects that they were interested in.
1: An editorial query.
2: Yes. Are there any other
1: pages in the Farmer's Almanac except the left ones and the right
2: uh, ones? No, but they're they're very. If you've looked at the almanacs lately, you'll see that the the left hand pages and the right hand pages are very different in an almanac. Uh, <laughs> uh, so some of us did one or the other. Others of us did both, and I did both. If you're editing uh, the right hand page in an almanac, you're you're working on tide calendars and sunrise and sunset, and it, it's numerical and graphic. And if you're working on the left-hand pages, it's words.
1: <laughs> there, there's so many ways we could approach this conversation. I just want to tell you how I discovered E.B. White. Okay. I was in St. Louis, Missouri in a mindless first job. It was the most awful job any young person with any imagination could possibly have. Uh-huh. And I was sustained through the entire time through bologna sandwiches and One Man's Meat, Uh the first collection of essays by this man I had never heard of, writing for a a magazine that I had no idea even existed in a city that I could not even imagine. And I was captivated. And I think there were two parts about it. One part about it was the, the voice which is, we want to talk about it, it's a very particular voice. Yeah. And then the, the form itself, because the essay is becoming, or at least for a while, became a kind of outmoded literary form. I think there's a revival.
2: Yeah, I, I would say that's right.
1: But I think that, that at the time, what a wonderful opportunity to just sit down quietly and indulge your thoughts. Montaigne, the great French essayist, uh, kept saying that the essay allows for perfect candor.
2: <laughs> if you take it. <laughs> if you take that road. Not every essayist does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my grandfather did take that very seriously. He, he considered that part of the necessary trappings of the job. It uh, was candor.
1: Montaigne also says... That the form is um, a kind of last resort of the egoist. Yes. That it requires a kind of self-serving self-consciousness that is really indulgent. So it's, it's absorbed, it, it's a bit egotistical, and it assumes that the mundane events of
2: my life matter. Right, to somebody else. To somebody else. Yes, yes. I I think the the gift that my grandfather had and and honed to a high art over the period of his writing life was to go beyond mere navel-gazing you know this is my day today in the barn or in the city wherever he was to extrapolate from that to the wider world and what he was talking about meant in the wider world. So for instance, in one of his essays, he's up on the roof of his barn shingling. uh, There's a weather vane on the cupola of the roof. He's talking about the very small, uh, I mean, big task of shingling a roof, but the very uh, kind of microcosm of, of being on your roof in Maine. He goes from that to talking about freedom and democracy and the view from the roof and how we all want to uh, preserve our own backyards and what's most important to us. Right. And that, that ability to extrapolate from the here and now to the wider world and other people's concerns with that kind of compassion for every person in their own backyard, uh, I think was unique uh, to him and a few other uh, essayists. It's not
1: a diary or a journal entry. Uh, it requires a great deal more risk
2: Yes, again, if you take it, uh, not everybody does, but I, he took that seriously. He, he saw his job as reporting on the world and to the world in the most careful honesty and precise language as he could possibly do. And he did it well. And, and One Man's Meat, I think, was among the very best of his essays. Be- one, because he was New to being in Maine, you know, he had finally gotten to a place he wanted to be not, not in the middle of the city in an office cooped up and writing at a desk, but able to be in his office writing and walk out to the barn and do his chores and walk back into his office and write about it. And and that freedom and ability to be in a rural community where people Prized his privacy the same as he did, and and write about the things that he loved, whether it was chickens or shingling the barn or making a small rowboat for his son, uh, you know, and and also at the same time talking about freedom and democracy and uh, the circle of time and uh, you know the many things that were part of his themes. That was pure joy to him, and I think that joy comes through in those essays.
1: Privacy is key.
2: Privacy was big.
1: Did people come and cluster at at his post office box? Henry Miller used to come out to get it. He didn't have a
2: post office (laughs) box. (laughs) Step number one. Well, in the early days, it was, uh, you know, literally a wooden box on the street with a canvas bag in it. And a a mail carrier came twice a day. There were two mails a day. Mm -hmm. And that's how his essays and notes and comments and casuals went back and forth to the New Yorker was through those two mails a day. Mm-hmm. And so he he would be at the mailbox twice a day, probably a few people <laughs> might have caught him there as Strap, they passed by. Strapping but, his uh,
1: work to the legs, <laughs> legs of pigeons and yeah. sending them off. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, <clears throat> Fowl, a yes. Segue from pigeons to yes. fowl yep. uh, to the one book, the latest book, this library uh, publication of the correspondence of your grandfather with Edmund Ware Smith, yes, entitled "Chickens Gin and a Main Friendship," catchy title. I'm not quite sure how yeah, it all works, good. but my I guess my point is, these two men were separated at birth. Yes, there is a kind of astonishing identification of perspective, point of view, and life experience that comes together through these letters. It's uncanny.
2: Yeah, they, they, they definitely had some similarities. They were very different in other ways. Uh, they had met through the mail and through the work of, of writing because Edmund Smith was uh, an editor at Ford Times, this very small magazine that Ford Motor put out for its readers. And there were many Ford Motor readers. And he had asked my grandfather to write a piece for him for Ford Times, which my grandfather chose to do. And it was very successful, and there was a second version of it done. And, and then after that, my grandfather got too busy to do more, although he was asked to do more. But it, it, it's interesting. I wish it was still available today, but it's not. But uh, anyone who knows the paintings of Charles Harper, the abstract paintings of birds, and they, they were chickadees and robins and you know the birds that we see here today, the the idea was that these paintings of birds were going to be put in tandem with my grandfather's captions describing the birds, and the captions were fabulous. They were uh, descriptions of the birds' characters, not just their appearances, and it it was a very successful, so successful uh, uh, partnership that there was an idea to make a book of it, although it was never done, unfortunately. But but that's how they met. They, they'd never met in person at that point. Uh, but l- many years later, Edmund Smith retired to damascotta, Maine. And at that point, he he knew my grandfather lived up the coast here and, and I think wanted to continue the correspondence. And so he sent a letter off uh, with an idea for a New Yorker squib, and they sort of reestablished the correspondence. And at that point, it was about... Uh, Edmund where Smith was saying he wanted to build a chicken coop. And that was right up my grandfather's alley was oh. to talk about how to build your chicken coop. <laughs> Not only do they
1: talk about it, they obsess about it in,
2: in absolutely,
1: absolutely yeah. constant detail. Yeah. I would say half the book. Is, yes. is chicken oriented.
2: Yes. Why, why or Although you don't have to enjoy keeping small flocks of chickens to enjoy <laughs> the book because it's uh, there's there's humor and and good writing in the mix. But it certainly helps if you're interested in chickens. You'll know how to build the proper chicken coop. My my grandfather had the advantage of a couple of decades on the move to Maine. Uh, he'd come to Maine in the 30s and started raising chickens right off the bat and and got into big-time chicken production for the war years where he was producing eggs to go off to the, uh, the soldiers and so forth. So he, he knew quite a lot about keeping – they were called small flocks, but they were big compared to what we would now call a small flock. He had uh, made a, an art of what the chicken coop should really look like and what worked and what didn't, and he, that was exactly the kind of thing he enjoyed passing along.
1: There are two things I noticed about it. One is there's a, a kind of blending of voice. They both have the same voice.
2: Oh, I you don't know, think so. At you
1: all. don't. Well, no. tell me about that. <laughs> I thought. Well, first, let's talk about one thing. I thought there was also competition between them. There was a little tension back and forth, a little bit of snark back and forth in the. In, in there
2: the was certainly snark. I, I think their voices are very different. It's interesting that you say that. I mean, they they're talking about the same kinds of subjects. They're, you know, they've both moved back to Maine. There's a lot of commonality, but I think the way they write and the word choices they use and the, um, the perceived audience maybe, especially from, from Edmund Ware Smith is very different. Uh, Edmund Ware Smith in my reading of his letters, he sounds like someone from the wild West. He's, he's an outdoorsman and a, He's kind of jokey and you know glad handing and uh, uh, I mean he's into the hunting and shooting and you know he's a he wants to be an outdoorsman he wants to be out with a main guide on the lake and and he that's what he did he and his wife did have a place on in Katahdin and and they, I mean they built a cabin from scratch uh, uh, you know he he came at it naturally but he was much more of the big hearty. Storyteller with kind of exaggerated language mm-hmm. than my grandfather. My grandfather's language is quite formal and mm-hmm. precise, and, and uses many fewer words. <laughs> and, um, and I think I I think they both admired each other. I, I think there was respect back and forth, but I think uh, I'm not sure competition. I don't think they were in the same race. Did, uh, <laughs> did they ever meet? They did. Yeah, they, I know there were at least a couple of visits where my grandmother and grandfather went to Damariscata and had drinks. And I, I think Edmund Wearsmith probably came to Brooklyn. I'm not, I can't really remember if that's true. Uh, I know there was talk about it, whether it actually happened. I'm not sure.
1: I've always imagined the idea of a lifelong correspondence with somebody I never met
2: uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Certainly, most of their relationship was by letter, mm-hmm. and and I think that's probably the way my grandfather preferred it. That was the way he preferred most relationships, and, except for family ones.
1: Your grandfather had and and spoke of often and so well about the relationship with animals. Yes. There's Fred.
2: Yes, the, the dachshund. dachshund
1: yes, uh, there's um, the chickens who had names and who had personalities. Some, some did. The some geese. Did.
2: The geese often had names. Right. Rare, less so the chickens, but. Some then,
1: did. then there is this description of the death of a pig. Yeah. In which he, the quote which just stuck with me was that he cried deep, hemorrhagic tears. <laughs> And I was in tears. <laughs> I was crying for the pig yeah. uh, and every lost animal that anybody has ever loved. <laughs> it was so perfect. It was so quiet, concise, yeah. and perfectly evocative. Yeah. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast live the first Friday of every month here on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm speaking today with Martha White, writer, editor, and literary executor for her grandfather, E.B. White, about his life and love of Maine.
2: Well, I, you know, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about my grandfather and pigs. It, uh, you know, on, on the farm, the pigs were slaughtered. Mm. I mean, my grandfather was not a vegetarian. And and uh, there have occasionally been ideas of turning the place into a, you know, a, a hospice for, for pigs. <laughs> so you don't have to slaughter them. Uh, that was not my grandfather's way at all. But, you know, he did recognize the imbalance or or, you know oddness of caring for feeding raising a pig and then turning around and slaughtering it and that you know that was not an easy thing for him to do but that was part of being a farmer and he did that and there's
1: a phrase in that particular one of those essays around the pig or 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 fred in which he talks about the relationship uh, as a as complexity through joy yes and so, th- there's no question animals give you joy. Yes, but it's not necessarily simple.
2: Right. It's it can be and really my grandf- complicated. My grandfather's dogs were another example of that. They were all neurotic and they, they characters, and one form or another. Most of all, Fred, but but even the others, you know. Yeah. They, and I, I mean, I think that's true in general of animals. They have their personalities, just like anything else, and and you come to know and appreciate that. And and my grandfather, he. He wasn't one to anthropomorphize animals, but I think he did have a keen observation of them and kind of understanding of the, the underlying instincts and propensities of uh, he had a goose named Apathy, for instance, <laughs> uh, who didn't want to lay, didn't want to right, sit on her eggs, right, you know. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's how some <laughs> of them got their names.
1: That's like naming your child Judas. <laughs> <laughs> Anthropomorphize, excuse me. Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little. I mean, if that is an anthropomization, I don't well, know Well it is.
2: not. I mean, he would argue that, I mean, clearly they had fictional characters, and there was fantasy involved in those. But for instance, when it came time to decide whether or not the movie was going to be made, he had very strict instructions to the movie makers about what to do and not to do with Charlotte, the spider. And and one thing was not to try to pretty her up and make her more lovable or or to take away you know the final scene mm-hmm. uh, of the book, which was making not only students but teachers cry mm-hmm. uh, and my grandfather as well he He believed in sticking to what was real about the animals
1: so there are several references in the essays of him taking his granddaughter here mm-hmm. and there yes. Did you know uh, you knew Fred?
2: No, I didn't know Fred. You didn't Fred, know Fred. Fred died before. And you didn't I was know born. the pig. The I, pig well, there grown. were many pigs. Yeah. I knew a, a, pig. a couple of pigs, Not the pig. uh, and I knew dachshunds. that you yeah. know there were many dachshunds and many pigs. Yeah. That, uh, and I knew the ones that came after 1954. Fred, Fred was uh, before my time, but I knew Minnie and and Augie and different ones.
1: Did you know Charlotte and Stuart?
2: Well, I knew the books.
1: But you know that did you know the books in the in in the time of their writing?
2: No, because I was the books came before I did. Stuart Little was nineteen forty six, I think forty five or forty six. Charlotte, I think, was nineteen fifty, and I was nineteen fifty four. So the first one that came out after I was born was Trumpet of the Swan, and I think I was sixteen or seventeen at that point.
1: Were you read those books as a child?
2: Oh yeah, I was given the books when I could read. And yeah, I I mean, I don't think my grandfather read them to me. My grandmother was the reader in the family. She Mm -hmm. was the one we'd sit next to and read, Mm -hmm. you know, at their house. But I had my own copies and I read my own copies. And when Trumpet of the Swan was published in 1970, when he got his first box load of books, he gave me one. And I sat on the couch at his house and read it with him in the room. And I remember how intently he watched me read it to see whether I was going to like it or laugh or enjoy it, which of course I did. Uh, and But I remember sort of the feeling of relief on his part that, you know, oh, maybe it's okay, or maybe it's good. Because it, he, he never thought any of his children's books were going to do very well. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was a very modest man.
0: Here is an excerpt of Trumpet of the Swan as read by E.B. White. Originally published in 1970, Trumpet of the Swan is the third and the last of E.B. White's works written for children.
3: He enjoyed the life on his father's cattle ranch in the sweet grass country in Montana. He loved his mother. He loved Duke, his cow pony. He loved riding the range. He loved watching the guests who came to board at the Beavers' ranch every summer. But the thing he enjoyed most in life was these camping trips in Canada with his father. Mrs. Beaver didn't care for the woods, so she seldom went along. It was usually just Sam and Mr. Beaver. They would motor to the border and cross into Canada. There, Mr. Beaver would hire a bush pilot to fly them to the lake where his camp was for a few days of fishing and loafing and exploring. Mr. Beaver did most of the fishing and loafing. Sam did the exploring. And then the pilot would return to take them out. His name was Shorty. They would hear the sound of his motor and run out and wave and watch him glide down onto the lake and taxi his plane into the dock. These were the pleasantest days of Sam's life. These days in the woods, far, far from everywhere. No automobiles, no roads, no people. No noise, no school, no homework, no problems, except the problem of getting lost, and of course the problem of what to be when he grew up. Every boy has that problem. After supper that evening, Sam and his father sat for a while on the porch. Sam was reading a bird book. Pop said, Sam, do you think we'll be coming back to camp again about a month from now? I mean in about 35 days or something like that. I guess so, replied Mr. Beaver. I certainly hope so. But why 35 days? What's so special about 35 days? Oh, nothing, said Sam. I just thought it might be very nice around here in 35 days. That's the craziest thing I ever heard of, said Mr. Beaver. It's nice here all the time. Sam went indoors. He knew a lot about birds, and he knew it would take a swan about 35 days to hatch her eggs. He hoped he could be at the pond to see the young ones when they came out of the eggs. Sam kept a diary, a day book about his life. It was just a cheap notebook that was always by his bed. Every night before he turned in, he would write in the book. He wrote about things he had done, things he had seen, and thoughts he had had. Sometimes he drew a picture. He always ended by asking himself a question so he would have something to think about while falling asleep. On the day he found the swan's nest, this is what Sam wrote in his diary. I saw a pair of trumpeter swans today on a small pond east of camp. The female has a nest with eggs in it. I saw three, but I'm going to put four in the picture. I think she was laying another one. This is the greatest discovery I ever made in my entire life. I did not tell Pop. My bird book says baby swans are called cygnets. I'm going back tomorrow to visit the great swans again. I heard a fox bark today. Why does a fox bark? Is it because he is mad or worried or hungry or because he is sending a message to another fox? Why does a fox bark? Sam closed his notebook, undressed, crawled into his bunk, and lay there with his eyes closed, wondering why a fox barks. In a few minutes, he was asleep.
1: Is the man that we perceive reading the essays, the man you knew as a granddaughter?
2: Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. I mean, the essays that are more about the city you know, are, are a man that I didn't see firsthand because I didn't live in New York or, or go to New York when he was working there. I didn't see his offices at the New Yorker or any of that end of things. So that, I'm not sure I even knew much about that end of things until I was in high school. Uh, but the 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 man you read when you're reading um, Homecoming or, or many of the one man's meat pieces about Maine, that was the man i knew and and it sounds like him it it feels like him i mean he he's appreciative of the farm he's clearly enjoying being on the water you know he's talking about sailing he's in the woods he's in the barn with the animals i mean that that was i knew him as an outdoor you know when we would go to visit my grandfather we would go in the barn or go to the shore or walk in the woods or, you know, we weren't in the house reading books.
1: Uh, Did he ever take you to the Freiburg Fair?
2: No. He took me to the Blue Hill Fair.
3: Uh, well, that's the same thing.
2: <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I remember, you know, sitting and watching the sheepdog trials with mm-hmm. my grandfather and that was, that was my grandfather time and through. Timeless. And I still love it
1: today. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, can you remember any other kind of moment grandfather granddaughter that has a kind of epiphany quality some passage that you can remember of a of a value or an instruction that you took to heart
2: he wasn't like that he he wasn't a teacher of mm-hmm. small children he i mean he was in in the way he led his life and the way he you know in reading his books and, and that sort of thing which all came later for me but the the grandfather i knew was a man who loved being with small children, took joy in a child's wonder at the world. I mean, he would be watching me or any child to see how they reacted to the new chicks or the new lamb or um, the funny dachshund swimming in the water with you. Uh, you know, And his joy was in experiencing... Sort of secondhand what the child was seeing, and and I think his capacity for observation and wonder was strong. I mean, it was almost like he had retained that same childlike appreciation of the world, which is rare in an older man or older woman. It, it's rare for somebody to retain that, you know, through their adult lives. It also
1: sometimes when when as a grandparent you try it feels false and by the way the grandchild senses it immediately
2: yes yeah it's not real right yeah. right but mm-hmm. he he wasn't the grandfather to say this is the way you do that mm-hmm. um, he was the one to say um, what would you do mm-hmm. you know how, what, what do you see you know kind of watch you interact and 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 maybe you know laugh at it a little bit
1: uh, let's talk a little bit about the sailing. Uh, he calls himself a pelagic boy, <laughs> which is a great thing to to think about. And the other thing that he he states overtly is that he preferred to sail alone.
2: Right. Well, he was a self taught sailor, and and I mean really self taught. I, I mean, I think in one of his essays he. He speaks of not even knowing charts existed until he was you know well into adulthood and and had sailed here and there uh you know he he didn't grow up sailing he grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, and you know there there were stables nearby with horses and he kept squabs and pigeons, but I don't think he'd been on a boat i mean he'd been in a rowboat or a canoe at Belgrade Lakes when they went in the summer. Uh, but I don't think he had sailed on the ocean and, until much later. And I don't think he had sailed with experienced sailors until much later. Mm-hmm. So I think his preferring to sail alone was, one, he was a solitary person and liked you know, quiet, but two, it allowed him to do it his own way and make his own mistakes and not be judged by someone else who might have thought that, you know, the yacht club guys would do it this way and you're not doing it right, kind of thing.
1: Well, there's candor there too, in a way, isn't it, to be just to accept responsibility for your mistakes from the minute you make them. Yes. Take the risk to go out there and right. and, and bang around and not be not fear embarrassment, but learn very quickly.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, I think he would have feared embarrassment <laughs> if somebody else, else had been around. <laughs> not me, I made fool of myself all the time. Yeah, I mean, he didn't pretend to know things he didn't know. Yeah. but But on the other hand, he probably felt like he should have known more than he did.
1: Your father was a boat builder, boat designer. Yes. Where did that come from? Did it not come from his father?
2: Well, I think in a way it did. I mean, you know, one... My grandfather was responsible for getting them both to Maine. My I think my father was 6 or 7 when he first came to Maine, you know, to to, to school, which my father was crazy about. I mean, he was much more a Brooklyn Maine man than he was a Brooklyn New York man. Right, right. Uh and I think you know when my father was about 10, my grandfather built him a, a little flat-bottomed scow called Flounder which came from a design in the American Boys Handybook, uh, about the simplest kind of little boat you could build. And my grandfather loved messing around in a workshop. And I think my father loved doing that with his dad. And and certainly he, my father loved having this little boat that he could first learn to row and then you know, used to throw a lobster trap overboard and then, you know, begin to imagine bigger and better things. And I think my grandfather probably had uh sailing magazines, you know, yachting and rudder and the those uh around the house because he was interested in boats and wanted to have a boat and so my father naturally would have picked those up and, and he my father started designing boats when he was a teenager. He he had designed and and published a design of his, I think in Rudder when he was 16 or 17 years old. And it would, the, one of the designs was bought and he built the boat and he had to, he felt like he had to pretend that he, you know, he, he never met the owner. I think he just corresponded with him and he had to pretend that he was much older than he was. Otherwise maybe his design wouldn't have been mm-hmm. built. Uh, but I think, I think my father's love of going in that direction probably came from his father's
1: love. So as, as his daughter, and E.B. White's granddaughter, do you sense a passage there that that that's personal that, that that you can point to in terms of your own growth? A passage,
2: well, about, sort of, and, this
1: sort of connection, this sort of—I mean, there's a genetic connection, but but what's is there is there is there a value connection that goes between in,
2: in terms of the, the the value of something something I, I, passed I, on from generation okay. to generation? Okay, certainly, and I th- I think what it would be the the value being passed on is do what you love, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, for my grandfather, it was writing for my father. It was boats. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think uh, there, there was a piece written about my father. I think John Wilson wrote it. John Wilson, Mm -hmm. uh, wrote it about my father and, and he mentions that, my grandfather had said something to the effect of, uh, you know, I used to say to him, do the thing that you love. And if that's the one thing he took away, then I'm happy about that. Mm-hmm. Because uh, my my father was, a, you know, he'd chosen to go in a very different direction than his parents thought he might. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think he, he chose well and it turned out good for everybody. And my, my grandparents ended up, thinking it was also a good idea. But when my father first came back to Brooklyn to start the Brooklyn Boatyard and go that direction, they, I think his parents were very worried that he could never make a living mm-hmm. at building mm-hmm. boats and designing mm-hmm. boats in Little Brooklyn. Made. Well, this is a public conversation,
1: not a therapy session. But, <laughs> but I would like to know, was there a dark side?
2: To my grandfather? Yeah. Well, he, I, I mean, he had, I th- I would say what would probably be called today a, a kind of social anxiety. I mean, he was not able to uh, give public readings or get up on a stage and take a an award. Or, I mean, he tried to do it a few times. It made him literally sick to his stomach. Uh, and he, you know, as his career progressed, he chose to do it less and less. Uh, And I think, you know, I think that was difficult. I I think it was a a constant battle for him to kind of lead what was really a very public life as he became more known for his work and and more well-read, you know, to lead such a public life and be a kind of celebrity um, when all he wanted was to be, you know, left to his office and barns and uh, private life, uh, I think, was a a bit of a struggle. I I wouldn't say it was a dark side, but I think it was uh, an obstacle for him Mm -hmm. that he had to learn to to cope with.
1: Well, I think the essays, many of them border on the philosophical. Uh They're they're steeped in the detail, but they border on the philosophical. I pulled out one quotation from one of the essays here, which uh, is many of the commonest assumptions are arbitrary. The new is better than the old. The untried is superior to the tried. The complex for advantageous, more advantageous than the simple. The fast, faster, quicker than the slow. The big, greater than the small. The world is remodeled by man, the architect, functionally sounder and more agreeable than the world as it was before he changed everything to suit his vogues and his consumptions. That's a very political statement.
2: Yes, many of his statements were political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's funny though. I think that passage can be read in a couple of different ways. And, and one way is, you know, the good old days were better than today. And the newfangled is bad. And that was not my grandfather. I mean, he did not believe that. And, and he, I think, prided himself on, um, listening to new voices and young voices and giving the benefit of the doubt to some newfangled creation, which might be better. He he was open to it being better, but he wanted to see it proved out. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't. And I think his real point in that passage is that the assumptions are what trip you up. You know, if you're going to assume that everything in the good old days was better, you're going to be wrong at least half of the time. If you're going to assume everything new is a better invention, you're going to be wrong at least half of the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, he had a pretty clear trajectory with that. I mean, he everybody has their own opinion about which things they might think are better or worse. But he was open to it, and and what he didn't like was the automatic uh, labeling or good or bad this or that, old or new.
1: So ostensibly, this conversation is about the relationship between a, a, an artist and an author and something as ephemeral as the spirit of Maine. But if you who know your grandfather's work probably better than anybody. Some. some. <laughs> yeah, if you were to enumerate what would be his list of the qualities that compose, comprise the spirit of Maine could you do that?
2: Going from some of his recurring themes, I mean, it would certainly be, you know, the work ethic in Maine, the kind of camaraderie in Maynard's ability to share information, whether it's your local vet or or your local postmistress or. You know, that that spirit of kind of we're all in this together. And, you know, a a man from New York moves to the country and starts a farm and is suddenly uh, producing eggs for the war. Uh, People could look and think, oh, what's this city guy doing? Mm -hmm. He doesn't know anything about how to build a chicken coop. And that was true. He had all the help in the world. And that's Maine, Mm -hmm. uh, at least as we've known it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was very readily accepted and and I think you know Henry Allen mm-hmm. who was his right-hand man on the farm for many years just gave him every bit of assistance he could possibly do mm-hmm. and and you know people in town helped to uh, guard his privacy when it was important and things mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. so you know I think those qualities he valued very highly I think he also saw in Maynard's a real belief in liberty and freedom and democracy, uh, you know, the, the real meaning of a liberal democracy, meaning you, you value your neighbors, you value, you know, your little corner of the world, you recognize that other people do too, and everybody should want the same freedoms.
1: Right, if freedom and democracy allow for harmony in a community, and then you replicate that in kind of concentric circles of influence, right, uh, to a county or to a state or to a nation state, right, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a strategy. It's a progressive strategy, actually.
2: Yes, right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think small towns, a, at least as we've known them, my grandfather and me, you know, growing up in, in Brooklyn, a, a very small town. One thing you learn is how to get along with all kinds of people. And I think that's one of the great values of small towns. Mm -hmm. And I hope it exists all over the country and other countries. It it is, uh, you know, that knowledge that everybody has something of value, whether it's the same or different than your own point of view, it's all important to the whole. And I, I think that's part of what he saw in Maine and that he responded to. It exists in in
1: cities in some cases, particularly in ethnic
2: neighborhoods. Right, and he wrote about about that. I mean, he wrote Mm -hmm. about New York in that same way Mm that, you know, the the, the small communities and neighborhoods.
1: This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine. Broadcast live the first Friday of every month here on WERU 89.9 FM, Streaming and archived at weru.org and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm speaking today with Martha White, writer, editor, and literary executor for her grandfather E.B. White about his life and love of Maine. There's a, a recognition of the practical. Yes. Uh, I see it all the time as you read through. They're just simply that. The practical is a kind of demonstration of truth and the uneternal verity. It, it, that's how it is. Right. Um, which I think is also part of, of the spirit, this elusive thing we pursue. Right. Uh, there's humor.
2: Yeah, plenty of
1: that. A kind of wry humor. Yes. Yeah. Not so much backslapping.
2: No, and I think that's one of the differences between he and, and edmund Wearsmith. Edmund Wearsmith was a little more backflopping mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know jovial and mm-hmm. uh, jocular mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. his his hunting and fishing buddies. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing wrong with that, just a different style
1: could we uh, we could suddenly divide the entire world into back <laughs> and,
2: <laughs> and other and <laughs> <wry> observers
1: <laughs> yeah um, what am I missing there's something there that. That I, I keep wondering to myself about, and I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying it's missing because it isn't there. It's missing because I can't quite articulate it. That I sense a sense of loss that I've, I've left something that he deliberately put on the table and I haven't picked it up.
2: Well, he put a lot of things on the table. Uh, I mean, one thing I often come back to in in looking at my grandfather's work in particular is that circle of time piece. And just the the feeling of the kind of natural progression of things. So for instance, with democracy right now, and I'm, you know, fairly recently off the on democracy book, you could imagine that in a time like we're in today, that many people might be discouraged at the way things are going and uh, might start to feel pessimistic about whether things are gonna come round right and that, whatever that means to you personally or politically. And I think a lot of people do feel that way today. I think my grandfather worried about it. I think he wrote about it. He hoped to help move things along, but I think he had a tremendous optimism that things would come round right and just in the darkest hour, suddenly something would change. You know, some person would make a difference. Some leader would make some headway. Some thing would happen, and the cycle would start again. And I think if you take a long look, as the historians do, about democracies, and uh, you'll see that there are these cycles, and, and things do happen that way. And it's often unpredictable, and you always worry, oh, maybe this time it's not going to come around right. So far it has. May it continue. I hope it does. Um, But I think he had a strong trust in that and wanted to help push in that direction and wanted other people to trust that the small actions that they took would make a difference.
1: Optimism and trust.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. What, what world are you living in? Yeah, well, it's the world of cycles, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where time mm-hmm. matters and things come around right. Uh, I mean, for instance, I, at the beginning of the program, you spoke about the On the Democracy book being, being published in China. Well, who would ever imagine that China would be publishing a book? by E.B. White called On Democracy. And, you know, true, they're choosing to call it On Hope instead of On Democracy from one of the best and most republished letters in that book, which is about the cycle of time. And I think it's for, you know, a couple of reasons. One, there's a lot of Chinese people learning English who want to read E.B. White. Almost all of his books that are still in publication are translated to Chinese now. Mm -hmm. And they sell, like, gangbusters in Mm -hmm. china which Mm -hmm. is amazing and Mm -hmm. hopeful to me Mm -hmm. and the the on democracy book was also picked up i think is very hopeful and i think it's an ironic fact i think it's going to be a fact that it will probably sell more copies in china than it does in america that to me you'd think might be a way of being discouraged i actually find it very encouraging
1: there was one essay there, there is an essay there. Do you? Could you put your finger on it now? That you're the
2: the on hope yes. letter. I don't have it with me, but yeah. it's 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 the letter to Mr. Nado that's in the letters book. Letters, yeah. letters of B.B. E. White. You can find it, and it was written. Mr. Nado had written my grandfather during the Vietnam War, and he was saying. Can you still find any mm-hmm. cause for hope? Mm-hmm. You know, what what helps you to get up in the morning when you see what we see on the news about the Vietnam War? And my grandfather's response was just so him. I mean, it was all about how, like the weather, it's a great bluffer. You know, one day you think spring is never going to come, <laughs> you know, Uh, and then it does. He talks about, you know, get up in the morning, wind the clock. He had an old grandfather clock that he uh, wound every day. Basically saying, you know, keep doing what you're doing, keep the trust, keep doing the small actions, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and things will change. Just Mm -hmm. give it time. Do you have any favorite pieces that you would pick and read? I, I mean, I'll read, I'll read you just a, a small uh, paragraph that speaks to the, the relationship uh, uh, with my grandfather. And this is about my brother Steve and me. And it, it's from, uh, it's it's in the essay's book. It's, it's, it's an essay written in 1957 called A Report in Spring. So in 1957, I was three and my brother Steve was four more or less. Uh, and the, the last paragraph of of the essay, he's talking about, he's gone back to the city, he's missing Maine, and and he writes uh, about that, he, and he says, one never knows what images one is going to hold in memory re- returning to the city after a brief orgy in the country. I find this morning that what I most vividly and longingly recall is the sight of my grandson and his little sunburnt sister returning to their kitchen door from an excursion with trophies of the meadow clutched in their hands, she with a couple of violets and smiling, he serious and holding dandelions, strangling them in a responsible grip. Children hold spring so tightly in their brown fists, just as grown-ups, who are less sure of it, hold it in their hearts.
1: Sunburned little granddaughter. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Uh, I read an article this morning that was so discouraging about the sort of the statistical despair of young people and yet that passage speaks right to to that that how do you how do you um, communicate in a way that is feeling and and meaningful that can give young people the hope that he talks about yeah and and the and the, and the ability to 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 look at the world and not succumb to its complexity, but find the joy.
2: Right. And one way you can do that is to spend time with young children, because children are all about the here and now. Mm-hmm. They, they are so in the moment, and they will make you laugh at the smallest thing mm-hmm. and make you remember the things that are important, which are usually outdoors.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have grandchildren?
2: I do. I have three granddaughters. Uh, and, and where are they? How old are they? Uh, so one is in Maine, uh, the, the middle one, she's eight. Uh, the oldest one is 12. She lives in England now. And the youngest one is two, and she lives in Ghana.
1: <laughs> Any of them raise chickens?
2: Uh, yes, the one in Maine raises chickens. <laughs> and so do I. <laughs> one of the things we have in common. Yeah, And she names them all. She does. <laughs> yes.
1: There's an essay called Homecoming. Uh, and it describes the the return to Maine coming across the line and the feelings contained.
2: Right. So, so this was written in 1955, and he writes, What happens to me when I cross the, the Piscataqua and plunge rapidly into Maine at a cost of 75 cents in tolls? I cannot describe it. I do not ordinarily spy a partridge in a pear tree or three French hens, but I do have the sensation of having received a gift from a true love. And when five hours later I dip down across the Naramissic and look back at the tiny town of Orland, the white spire of its church against the pale red skies stirs me in a way that Chartres could never do. It was the Naramissic that once received as fine a lyrical tribute as was ever paid to a river. A line in a poem by a schoolboy who wrote of it, it flows through Orland every day. I never cross that mild stream without thinking of this testimonial to the constancy, the dependability of small, familiar rivers.
1: Constancy. I think we should stop there. Thank you, Martha.
2: (laughs) Thank you. This has been fun.
1: It's a wonderful conversation right here, (laughs) surrounded by pointed furs. (laughs) My guest today has been Martha White, author, editor, and literary executor for her grandfather, E.B. White. New Yorker writer, essayist, keen observer of Maine, and author of Charlotte's Webb and Stuart Little, beloved classics for children of all ages. My guest next time will be Peter Beckford, Maine farmer and storyteller, who will introduce the work of the late Holman F. Day, journalist, poet, and raconteur, whose accounts of neighbors and friends, often in dialect, are classic evocations of the spirit of Maine. I like the thought of the long nights, he writes. I know the barns are full inshore, the coasters are hunting harbor. Light shines in the windows and the rosy beams leak under the cracks of the doors. As though there was so much glory inside the warm homes that it is spilling out into the night. I like to think of the open hands and smiles and greetings at the thresholds. Sarah Orne Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs in 1896. And it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnet Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story, the portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living in nature, at work for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in, that sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists, visit our galleries and independent bookstores, and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal.
0: You've been tuned in to Conversations from the Pointed Furs, Elite Island Books audio project, produced by Trisha Badger, theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Visit pointedfurs.org for more information and find us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.